Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone. Before we start, I have some exciting news. First, I want to say a huge thank you to Ryan Okonski, who has done an amazing job as our social media manager here at ACRAC for the past year. Ryan, as an intern understandably, is very busy and so has passed the baton on to two fantastic new additions to the ACRAC team. And I'm really excited to welcome Chris Reese and Sonia Amanat, who will be managing our social media and taking it in some new directions and doing some really exciting things with our website as well. I'm really grateful to both of them for coming on board. Welcome and check out the great stuff they're going to do on all of our social media platforms moving forward. All right, now on with the show. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolfaw and you got it. We're back with another keyword episode with the one and only Dr. Jillian Isaac. We are going today to talk about post-op nausea and vomiting in two parts, the basic exam and the advanced exam, uh, since they will be, it'll appear on both. Uh, I want to remind listeners that if you're looking for CME credit, ACRAC now offers CME through CMEFI. So you can check that out by clicking on the link on each of the show notes for each episode. All right. We're here with Dr. Jillian Isaac. Jillian, thanks for coming back on the show. You have to pay for the CME credit or if you just listen, you get it. You have to do a short reflection uh, on the episode that you listen to and then pay a small fee. comes out actually to a lot less than like going to a CME conference. Right, yeah. Yeah, um, but it is not totally free. I feel like they've made it a lot easier to get CME credits as time goes by. Totally. Okay. Uh, yeah, so as Dr. Wilpaw said, this is post nausea and vomiting for the basic and advanced exam. It's kind of mismatched together because it's really hard to parse out. But as you guys know, about 30 to 40% of the advanced exam is actually basic. So you're going to relive this again. Um, so if you want to know what the ABA says you need to know, if you go to the outline content for the basic, it's on page 13. It's actually under PACU and it's nausea and vomiting and then physiology, etiology, risk factors, preventative strategies. And then it's really the pharmacology. So the use of antacids antacids, histamine blockers, Reglan, transdermal scopalamine, droperidol, serotonin antagonists like Zofran, proton pump inhibitors, dexamethasone, multimodal therapy, and then interesting acupressure and acupuncture. Um, we actually have a physician, she's she, Rosie, has she left? Has she, she left, left Hopkins? Yeah. She, left. she was with us for many years, but she did uh, fellowship in alternative medicine. And I have a really good friend who has just suffered. She had breast cancer. So she's had so many surgeries and she really suffered with terrible post nausea and vomiting. And Rosie did acupuncture on her and it was amazing. It worked. Um, but I don't think they're testing it. The point of that is to say, while it's on the outline, I have not, I've yet to see a, te- a test question about acupuncture. So if you go to the open anesthesia website, which is free, you can type in keywords and it will tell you how many times it's been tested. So it gives you an idea of kind of what's high yield of these topics. So that's how I know 
quote unquote, know when these were last tested. I'm not making it up. I go to open anesthesia. So what they're testing is treatment of post-op nauseum vomiting that was tested in 2012, 14, 15, 18, 20. So super common question. They like to ask a lot about Raglan, which I know, so on these tests, they really try hard to use the generic. So it's metoclopramide. I just hate saying that. <laughs> Raglan so much easier, but you need to know that it is metoclopramide and usually they'll use the generic. Sometimes they'll put the trade name in parentheses, but it's really important when you're studying for these tests to know both. Um, so they like asking about Raglan, the pharmacological effects, gastric effects, side effects, and that's been tested in 09, 12, 15, and 2019. Ambulatory surgery and post-op nausea and vomiting, obviously like prevention and treatment, 16, 17, and 21. I think that's a bit of a hot topic because as more and more surgeries go ambulatory, one of the key things is getting patients out of the PACU, you know, PACU stays. So really trying to minimize nausea and vomiting is a huge criteria in PACU stays for ambulatory surgery centers. And then pediatrics and the difference between kids and adults when it comes to post-op nausea and vomiting, that was tested in 09, 2012, 16, and 19. And then risk reduction, so basically prophylaxis and TIVA, what we can do to prevent it. That was last tested in 2017. And then the effect of inhalational anesthetics on post-op nausea and vomiting, that was tested in 2017 and 2019. Uh, side effects of ondansetron, which is Zofran, that was tested in 2013. H2 blockers tested in 2010 and 2013. Anticholinergic side effects, so basically scopolamine and management of post-op nausea and vomiting, especially in patients with glaucoma. That was actually very recently tested in 2019-2020. And then risk factors in 2015. So I remember when I started residency and just all this talk about post-op nausea and vomiting, and I thought, A, it's the most boring subject alive, and B, like, why do I care? But it turns out post-op nausea and vomiting is the leading cause of unanticipated hospital admissions after anesthesia and surgery. And among high-risk patients, the incidence can actually be as high as 80%. So it's one thing that we can really do as anesthesiologists to make people's PACU stays much more enjoyable and get them out of the hospital quicker. So it is a really important topic, although maybe not the most riveting one. <laughs> So the first key point is that risk factors for post-op nausea and vomiting include female gender, non-smokers, a history of post-op nausea and vomiting or motion sickness, and use of post-operative opioid medications. Volatile anesthetics increase the risk of post-op nausea and vomiting, as do certain types of surgeries, so like breast, abdominal, in kids, strabismus surgery, GYM procedures, laparoscopic procedures, ENT surgeries, and then the longer the surgery takes, the increase the risk you have for it. So these are some of the questions regarding that first key point. All of the following surgeries are associated with an increased risk of post-operative nausea and vomiting, except A, shoulder arthroscopy, there we go, uh, B, laparoscopic surgery, C, strabismus repair, D, tympanoplasty. Yeah, and so you, as you mentioned, laparoscopic surgery is a risk for this, strabismus surgery definitely is, and then ENT surgeries like depanoplasty. So B, C, and D are all risk for this. Shoulder arthroscopy should not be, um, just in general, and also because you can actually do this with just regional, that's even more of a reason to think that you wouldn't, but that is not a risk factor. So the answer here is going to be A. And that's a big upside of regional. When I was at Columbia for residency, we did a lot of regional, which is like propofol. A lot of our GYN cases, our cysto cases, a lot of our breast cases we did with local and heavy sedation. Uh, and most of our orthopedic cases were with regional. And that's nice because it does significantly decrease that um, post-op nausea and vomiting. Uh, so the second question there is the 22-year-old non-smoking woman 
with no previous anesthetic history, undergoes a laparoscopic ovarian cystectomy. Her risk of postoperative nausea and vomiting is most closely approximated by A, 5%, B, 10%, C, 20%, D, 40%. Yeah, so what I remember here is that you have to remember the risk factors, and you listed them up front, Jillian. So non-smoking is a risk factor. Being a woman is a risk factor. She doesn't have previous anesthetic history, and they don't say anything about motion sickness, so we can't we don't know about that one. Um, and then, uh, you know, the surgery itself is um, here. It's a laparoscopic surgery. But if we just think about the patient-specific risk factors, so non-smoking and a woman, um, the way to think about that is that uh, she's got two. So that takes her from a baseline, if you had zero, of about 10% up to one giving you 20 and then two giving you 40% chance. So she should have about a 40% chance, which is going to be answer choice D. And you might think, well, but doesn't it add? Add to it that she's having laparoscopic surgery, but not the choices here don't go above forty percent. So exactly. the only option right. here is this AD. And the truth is, like, if they gave the other option, I think they're trying to make it not so complicated because you it goes. There's the I don't know if you've looked it up recently, but there is like a stratification for yeah. the risk with some nausea and vomiting, and you're looking at up to four parameters, and that equates to 10, 20, 40, 60, and eighty percent. But they, it's kind of hard sometimes to parse out like 60 versus 80. And I think they were eliminating the um, post-op medication opioid because that would add and then laparoscopic would add. So really, truly, if you're using the stratification, it would be 80, but they're not giving you that option. So it's really just the highest one there. Yeah. And I think that like APFEL stratification is patient. It's not, I don't think that takes into account the surgery. So it's female gender, non-smoking. History of post-op nausea, vomiting, or motion sickness, and then use of or expected use of uh, opioid medication. So it's those four that take you from you know from ten, which is the baseline, to twenty, forty, sixty, or eighty. So I think they're that's what they're getting at is using that risk stratification. You actually don't look at the type of surgery, right? And they didn't tell you about narcotic, right? Didn't even add it in there. Okay, so moving into our next key point is that in pediatric patients, there is a higher incidence of post-op nausea and vomiting associated with higher pain scores. So while adults get nausea and vomiting just from the change in chemoreceptors, kids, it's actually very much related to pain. And then also the use of opioids for pain management. So it's a bit of a catch-22, right? Like if you use opioids to treat their pain, they're going to have post-op nausea and vomiting, but if you don't and they have pain, they're going to have post-op nausea and vomiting. And then just like adults, volatile anesthetics can cause increased risk of nausea and vomiting. And then really the big one is strabismus surgery. It has up to like 80%, 90% of kids who have strabismus surgery end up with post-op and nausea and vomiting. So here are uh, questions that relate to that key point. Nausea and vomiting in pediatric outpatients are A, directly related to postoperative pain, B, unrelated to the length of the procedure, C, eliminated by preoperative administration of droperidol, D, eliminated by intraoperative gastric drainage, E, more frequent than in adults. Right. And so a couple of just kind of test-taking tidbits here. In, in, in medicine, nothing is 100%, right? So the, the idea that they're saying that nausea and vomiting are completely eliminated by pre-op administration of droperidol or by nasal gastric drainage, right? You've got to say, no way that could be the answer because there's no way to completely eliminate the risk of post-op nausea and vomiting. So you can probably cross those off right away. Um, you'd have to know that pediatric um, nausea and vomiting um, 
is not necessarily more frequent than in adults. Um, so that would, but if you didn't know that, that would get rid of E. And then um, it is related to the length of the procedure, which Jillian said up front. So B is not going to be the right answer. So that leaves you with A. And you already went over this, but it's directly related to post-op pain, um, most, very specifically in pediatric patients. So the next question is, which of the following operations would be associated with the least incidence of post-op nausea and vomiting in a five-year-old boy? A, tonsillectomy, B, strabismus surgery, C, meringotomy tube placement, D, orchiopexy. Uh, that's a tough one. Um, so we know strabismus definitely is the most, so that we can easily get rid of. Tonsillectomy, uh, again, ENT surgery, in the throat, not super short. So that seems like it's probably up there. Orchiopexy is an interesting one, um, and uh, I mean, it certainly sounds like something that would be associated with nausea and vomiting. Um, Meringotomy tube placement, I think, is a tricky one because, yes, it's an ENT surgery, but it takes about, you know, five seconds. And so I think that that probably makes it less likely. Orchiopexy is going to be a significantly longer procedure. So I think, if nothing else, you should be able to come down to C and D. I'd probably go with C because of it being so fast that it's probably not um, likely to cause much in the way of nausea and vomiting. Right. And the, the, explanation to the answer said, if there's a procedure that lasts less than 30 minutes, it's actually decreases the incidence of nausea and vomiting. So it's a brief procedure with minimal pain, and that's going to decrease your risk of nausea and vomiting. All right. So the next question in that category is each of the following results in a reduction of the incidence of postoperative vomiting in children undergoing strabismus surgery, except a I. IV hydration of 30 milliliter per kilogram per hour, B, dexamethasone, 0.15 to 1 milligram per kilogram IV, C, ondansetron, 50 to 200 microgram per kilogram per IV, D, anticholinergics, like atrabine, 10 to 20 microgram per kilogram, or glycopyrrolate, 10 microgram per kilogram. So yeah. it's an accept. I know we're getting away from accept questions, but. Yeah. No, I mean, I think this is interesting. So. All the question is which of these, so you got to, whenever you, if you were to get one that said all the following except, you have to say to yourself, okay, um, which one of these does not reduce the incidence of post-op nausea and vomiting? So that's, that's how you, how you want to phrase it in your head. So then you look IV hydration in general, just from thinking about it, right? People often are dehydrated. They get nauseous when you're hungover. You want, you know, you want some IV hydration. So it seems like that should probably make sense. Certainly anti, Nausea medicines like Decadron and Ondansetron or Zofran are definitely going to help. So you can easily eliminate B and C. So that leaves you D, anticholinergics. And in general, anticholinergics, uh, you know, as far as I know, don't have any anti uh, post nausea and vomiting effect. So I would go with D. Yeah, so that's not going to help. And I think people might be thrown off by the IV hydration because it's actually a pretty high rate, like 30 milliliter per kilogram per hour in pediatrics. But there was a study done recently that this superhydration actually helps decrease post-op nausea and vomiting. Normally, you use 10, per, 10 milliliters per kilogram per hour. So I think that's probably why people might get thrown off is just in the, the numbers. But definitely not anticholinergics. They definitely don't help. Okay, so moving on to key point three, and I will say of all the drugs, they're every source that I use for getting questions, they all had multiple questions about Reglan, again, which is metoclopramide. Um, so it's a very commonly tested uh, question, question, drug on the on basic and the advanced. So uh, Reglan, it's a D2 receptor antagonist, but it also has some 5-HT3 antagonist uh, and agonist effects. 
So through its anti-dopaminergic and anti-serotonergic effects, it blocks the communication between the chemoreceptor trigger zone and the nucleus tractus ciliaris, and thereby it acts as a potent anti-emetic. And preparing for this podcast, I actually read that it's one of the top 100 prescribed drugs in America. It's like a super commonly used drug. Um, It also can increase GI motility and contractility. And it can be used both as an anti-emetic and a promotility agent. So you used it like uh, patients with diabetes and slowed gastric emp- uh, emptying can be on Reglan. So it primarily has anti-dopaminergic effects, and that's how it causes anti, uh, it's a anti-emetic effects. But it also can act similarly to antipsychotics and anti-dopaminergic action. So you can see extra pyramidal symptoms that include acute dystonia, Parkinsonism, uh, akathisia, and NMS, interestingly enough. Uh, so it also has been associated with the development of tardive dyskinesia, particularly with long-term use. And the FDA has recommended that the drug not be given for longer than 12, 12 weeks. It can also prolong QT. I know most people associate droperidol with prolonged QT, but it is one of the drugs that can do that. So it's important if people are on multiple antiemetics and multiple drugs, like methadone is one that can prolong QT. You got to be a little careful in giving it. All right. So these lead to key point three questions. Question one. Metoclopramide acts to A, block dopamine receptors, B, decrease gastric acid production, C, decrease lower esophageal sphincter tone, D, delay gastric emptying, E, facilitate central cholinergic stimulation. So hopefully uh, this is a very basic part of knowing what metoclopramide does. You know it's a dopamine blocker, so you should know that the answer here is A. It clearly doesn't delay gastric emptying. That would do the, it's in fact does the opposite. It facilitates gastric emptying. Um, and to do that, um, uh, that's how it's going to empty your stomach and maybe reduce your risk of, of nausea. Um, so uh, those are the key points I think to know here. Right. So it acts to block dopamine receptors. The next question, a patient with Parkinson's disease undergoes a general anesthetic. Your plan to treat his nausea and vomiting would include all of the following except dexamethasone is A, B, scopolamine patch, C, metoclopramide, D, ondansetron. All right. So what they're getting at here is that you don't want to block dopamine receptors in a patient with, with Parkinson's. So decadron, totally fine and safe. Uh, ondansetron, again, is a, a 5-HT2 receptor, a serotonin receptor um, blocker. So again, fine. Scopolamine is an anticholinergic. You have to be careful in Parkinson's disease with those, but certainly um, it's a patch. It's not quite as systemic and metoclopramide is going to be much worse. So if you have to choose, you're going to choose metoclopramide, which is the thing you would not give. So a patient has tonic movements of the head and neck nystagmus, and slurred speech after receiving metoclopramide for nausea after nitrous oxide opioid anesthesia. The most appropriate pharmacological treatment is A, diphenhydramine, B, midazolam, C, naloxone, D, phenytoin, E, physostigmine. The key here is realizing that if you have a problem with anti, um, with uh, pyramidal symptoms from blocking dopamine, part of it is throwing the dopamine Colon, uh, acetylcholine balance out of whack. And so if you are going to block dopamine, if you've blocked dopamine, what you can do to help block that is to block acetylcholine um, through something like Benadryl or diphenhydramine. So that those two then will be a little more in balance and that can help. So diphenhydramine is a treatment for the anti-dopaminergic effects of uh, something like metoclopramide. Right, exactly. 
So next question here is a 72-year-old patient who takes levodopa and carbidopa is undergoing colon resection. Medicalopramide is administered preoperatively and anesthesia is maintained with propofol, fentanyl, and nitrous oxide with vecuronium for muscle relaxation. 15 minutes after reversal of muscle relaxation with neostigmine and atropine and tracheal extubation, the patient has dyspnea and muscular rigidity. Which of the following is the most likely cause? A, central anticholinergic syndrome. B, fentanyl-induced rigidity. C, inhibition of methionine synthetase by nitrous oxide. D, metoclopramide-induced dopamine antagonism. E, peripheral conversion of levodopa to dopamine. Yeah, so a few things. They're making sure to tell you they reversed with neostigmine and uh, atropine, which does mean atropine does cross the blood-brain barrier, so you could have central anticholinergic syndrome from the atropine. However, the way this is presenting with dyspnea and muscular rigidity is going to fit more with an antidopaminergic syndrome um, like they're giving you in choice D than it will with centri- central ant- uh, anticholinergic syndrome. Uh, fentanyl-induced rigidity, again, um, though they said, just looking back, they did give fentanyl at the beginning. Um, it doesn't look like they gave it or didn't tell you they gave it throughout the case. So again, that's going to be a lot less likely, though certainly you can get um, chest wall rigidity from, from fentanyl. Um, methionine synthetase inhibition by nitrous oxide, not going to cause rigidity and dyspnea. And then peripheral conversion of levodopa to dopamine um, is uh, not uh, sure why they're giving you that, but doesn't seem like that's a likely cause. So of these choices, I think you'd probably come down to anti, uh, central anticholinergic syndrome um, or medicalopramide-induced dopamine antagonism. I'd go with D again because uh, I'd have to look up to remind myself all the different um, components of central anticholinergic syndrome, but this seems to fit more with uh, dopamine. Yeah. And then we're going to do some questions that seem a little bit repetitive, but I just want to make sure that everyone really got this because it's such a heavily tested uh, concept. So uh, here's a patient who has tonic movements of the head and neck, nystagmus, and slurred speech after receiving metoclopramide for nausea after nitrous oxide opioid anesthesia. Is that the exact same question? Nope, sorry. I doubled a question up. Ignore it. Moving on. <laughs> that was the diphenhydramine treatment, but we're going to move on. So metoclopramide, A, decreases gastric acid secretion. B, decreases gastroesophageal sphincter tone. C, is contraindicated in patients with Parkinson's disease. D, is most effective when administered in combination with atropine. E, requires an intact vagus nerve for gastrointestinal effects. And we talked about this already, but as you said, good to drive it home. It is contraindicated in patients with Parkinson's disease. Yeah. Which of the following is an effect of metoclopramide? A, decreased lower esophageal sphincter tone. B, decreased MAC for influrane. C, extra pyramidal signs. D, increased gastric pH. E, relief of intestinal obstruction. Oh, yeah, I don't love this question because it's, you know, it says which is an effect as if it happens all the time. Um, but it's certainly, med- it's I've never seen it, right? We talk about this all yeah. the time and I've actually never seen it. So you're right. right. Yeah. So, so the answer is extra pyramidal, yeah. extra pyramidal signs. So it can cause extra pyramidal signs. It certainly does not usually cause them. Um, but of these other things, so it's not going to cause decreased lower esophageal sphincter tone. Um, it's not going to decrease MAC. It's not going to increase your gastric pH. Um, and it, it, interestingly, you, you may be tricked by E, relief of intestinal obstruction. That's actually key. If you have a mechanical obstruction in the intestines, you don't want to give metoclopramide because it's not going to relieve the instruct, uh, obstruction. It's going to cause 
your stomach to empty and it's going to cause your body to try to push against that obstruction. So you can actually cause increased pressure upstream from the obstruction and cause damage or even an intestinal rupture. So you don't want to give pro-motility agents in the setting of a mechanical obstruction. So that's actually, we've got to be very careful with that one. So a 65-year-old man has nausea and vomiting in the PACU needing anti-emetic therapy. He develops involuntary facial movements, difficulty swallowing, and torticollis. Which of the following drugs is most likely to be the cause of these symptoms? A, promethazine, which is Phenergan. B, diphenhydramine, which is Benadryl. C, metoclopramide, which is Reglan. Or D, a drug that I don't really know, but I'm going to guess, Granny Citron, which is called yeah. Hytron. How do you say it? Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I'd say Granacitron as well. It's uh, similar to um, Ondansetron, right? It's like a newer version of Zofran. Um, so again, what they're getting at here is he's having pyramidal symptoms. And what uh, is likely to cause that is anti-dopaminergic. And so Reglan is is the most likely one here. Interestingly, promethazine can do it too. Um, so it's not the best set of answer choices diphenhydramine, again, as we said earlier, would be a treatment for it so that clearly you can get rid of B and Zofran and its analogs does not cause it. You can get rid of D. So you really would come down to A and C here. Um, probably what they're getting at is that metoclopramide is a little more direct antidopaminergic or a little stronger of an antidopaminergic than promethazine, but they both can do it. So again, I, I would say, you know, these questions get screened, obviously, before going on a real test. Uh, I think they'd probably change that A to something else. Yeah, and a lot of my sources are old IT questions that have been re- like released, so they are a little bit older or they've been screened out. Yeah. Stay with us. We'll be right back with another question in just a sec. All right, we're back with another question for this keyword episode. All right, so severe nausea and vomiting in the PACU is most effectively treated with a drug that acts as an antagonist of which of the following receptors? A, alpha-adrenergic, B, beta-adrenergic, C, dopamine, D, GABA, E, glutamate. Yeah, so the answer here is clearly going to be dopamine. They did not give you serotonin, right? Uh, Otherwise, that would have been tricky because then you'd be thinking about things like Zofran. But since they did not give you that as a choice and all you have here um, are other things that really aren't going to have any effect on post-dominosis and vomiting, so what you're left with is dopamine. Now, I will say that there's some newer literature suggesting that um, Versed can actually be a fairly effective anti-emetic, and so that acts through the GABA system. So in that sense... Uh, this may have been before that really came out because there was a meta-analysis that showed that not just a few years ago, and I'm guessing this question predates that. So I would think you wouldn't have GABA as a choice on this question these days, but um, certainly dopamine is is an effective answer here. So the last question in the, the Reglan series, <laughs> which of the following premedicant drug combinations is most effective in preventing passive regurgitation during anesthesia? A, cimetidine and glycopyrrolate. B, metoclopramide and atropine. C, metoclopramide and ranitidine. D, metoclopramide, atropine, and ranitidine. E, metoclopramide and sodium bisitrate. Interesting. Um, so right. certainly, what's that? I said, right. Yeah, it's not. I I didn't get it right when I did this one in my head. Yeah. So preventing passive regurgitation. So what they're getting at here is um, emptying the stomach. What's going to help empty the stomach the most? Um, And yeah, so cimetidine and glycopyrrolate, um, not uh, necessarily promotility. Metoclopramide, um, we know is. Atropine uh, is going to be an anticholinergic. And we know that the cholinergic um, system is what is responsible for gastric motility. It's why things like neostigmine can cause diarrhea. 
So anything that's blocking it, like glycopyrrolator atropine, is going to fight against stomach emptying. So that's another reason why A is not right. B, including atropine, is not right. Metoclopramide and ranitidine. Um, so ranitidine is going to decrease the acidity of the stomach, but uh, not going to do much for gastric emptying, but we know metoclopramide will. So that's a good choice because nothing's stopping gastric emptying. Choice D includes atropine, which we said will prevent gastric emptying. And then choice E, metoclopramide and sodium bicitrate. Um, so I, again, I would say not, as far as I know, ranitidine doesn't help gastric emptying, but maybe it does have some effect that I'm not familiar with. So well, it's I really down. Also, yeah. Sodium well, bicitrate, while it will decrease the pH, like ranitidine does, decrease it it's extra volume, right? It's like a 30 ml drink. Right, so it adds right. that volume. In. So maybe that's the answer. So you're definitely yeah. between C and E, right? Metoclopramide and ranitidine is C. Metoclopramide and sodium bicitrate is E. They're, yeah. I think those are very similar. Maybe you're right. The reason they're saying C over E is because right. ranitidine doesn't add as much volume. Add the as, volume, as yeah. Hydrogen. And that was the explanation is that the ranitidine will be the H, the, the um, H2 blocker, but it won't increase volume. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so moving on. Well, I think we were good with metoclopramide. <laughs> so moving on is key point four, which is scopalamine. So scopalamine is used to manage and treat postoperative nausea and vomiting and motion sickness. It's an anticholinergic. So the vomiting center of the brain is located in the medulla oblongata and contains a high amount of M1 muscarinic acetylcholine, H1 histamine, NK1, and 5-HT3 serotonin receptors. So any agent that antagonizes those receptors will have antimetic properties. So scopalamine exerts its action by primarily affecting the M1 receptor. The most commonly reported side effects of scopalamine patch are blurred vision, dilated pupils, and dry mouth. The FDA currently lists two contraindications for scopalamine. One is allergy to belladonna alkaloids, and the other is um, angle closure glaucoma. And that's the big one that you see, is they want you to know not to use scopalamine with people with angle closure glaucoma. So here are some questions regarding scopalamine. During pulmonary artery catheterization, a 65-year-old man receives morphine, 6 milligrams, and scopalamine, 0.4 milligrams IV. The pulse oximeter indicates desaturation, which quickly resolves with stimulation. When the drapes are removed, he has unilateral eye pain, decreased visual acuity, and dilated and irregular pupils. The eye symptoms are most likely caused by A, retinal hemorrhage, B, morphine-induced oculogyric crisis, C, corneal abrasion, D, carotid artery embolization, E, angle closure glaucoma. Great. So they're getting an angle angle closure glaucoma, as you mentioned, being uh, a really important um, contraindication to using scopolamine. So E is going to be the answer here. Corneal abrasion, while it certainly can cause eye pain and decreased visual acuity, does not cause dilated and irregular pupils. So that's how you're getting rid of that. Carotid artery embolization, um, is, uh, I guess, depending on where that embolus goes, uh, but that's a little, a little too broad. Morphine-induced oculogyric crisis, can't say I know what that is, uh, right. but that doesn't sound right. And retinal hemorrhage, again, um, not going to affect the pupils. So um, E is the answer. What they really want you to know is that scopalamine is contraindicated with patients with angle closure glaucoma and to not use it, and it can make it really bad. And I'm no glaucoma expert, but in reading up, I think what they said is when you dilate the pupil, you don't get good drainage. And so pressure builds up, and that's why it makes it worse. Okay, a 69-year-old man is confused and agitated one hour after preoperative 
intramuscular administration of scopolamine for awake fiber optic laryngoscopy. His SpO2 measured by pulse oximetry is 97%. Which of the following drugs is most appropriate for treatment in the change in mental status? A, fentanyl, B, flumazenil, C, midazolam, D, neostigmine, E, physostigmine. So you're looking at anticholinergic uh, syndrome here. And uh, interestingly, that is actually a described feature, even if you don't get um, something like scopolamine um, that you can get just from general anesthesia. It's rare, but but a, a cause of failure to fully awaken after anesthesia. And the treatment is um, physostigmine. So you would give uh, physostigmine. You got to be careful. You get so you know obviously don't don't do this without knowing your institution's protocol for it. But you would give it slowly and in appropriate amounts. And and if this were the cause, it should reverse it. Yeah, so the answer is E, physostigmine. So the next question here is we have a healthy 10-kilogram child is flushed and restless after pre-medication with meperidine, 15 milligrams, and scopolamine, 0.2 milligrams IM. His skin is warm and dry, temperature is 38 degrees Celsius, pulse is 130 beats per minute, and blood pressure is 90 over 60 millimeters of mercury. The most likely cause is A, dehydration, B, idiosyncratic reaction to meperidine, C, malignant hyperthermia, D, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, E, scopolamine. Right. So they're describing anticholinergic syndrome here. And so um, the most likely cause is the anticholinergic, uh, the scopolamine. And which of the following statements is false regarding scopolamine patch applied preoperatively? A, it may produce sedation. B, it decreases the risk of nausea. C, adds to the analgesia. D, inhibits muscarinic receptors. So... um, it definitely can produce sedation. Uh, it definitely, obviously, we use it for anti-emetic, so it definitely can decrease the risk of nausea and vomiting. Um, it, um, uh, so they're, those are both true, which means they're not correct answers here. Um, it inhibits muscarinic receptors. That is also true. Um, it's an anti-muscarinic, anticholinergic. Um, and that leaves C, so adds to the analgesia. And, and what's tricky here is that... Um, you know, we use it a lot as part of ERAS pathways, so you may think that it can add to the analgesia, but we use it for the po- the anti-nausea, not not the analgesic effect. And it is sedative, and yeah. that can help, but it doesn't co- help with the analgesia. And I actually, whenever I order a scopolamine patch for my patients for post-apnausia and vomiting, I always tell them to expect, like, difficulty focusing and a dry mouth and not to take it off with regular, like, take it off very carefully because you can get a bigger dose than you want when you peel that sticker off. Okay, so that's scopalamines. Moving on to droperidol, which is key point five. Droperidol is most effective if you give it at the end of surgery, and it's particularly effective when patients are using like morphine PCA for post-op pain management. Um, however, there was an FDA black box warning put on droperidol, I don't know, about what, 15 years ago, and it has curbed enthusiasm, but it is a great drug for nausea. I used it in my first year of residency. It works really well, but it's a, I'm going to butcher this too, butyrophenone, and it's strictly related to haloperidol. So it affects receptors in the central nervous system, including the dopamine receptors in the caudate nucleus and the medullary chemoreceptor trigger zone. Um, And that's why it can counteract nausea and vomiting. Um, It may also interfere with transmission mediated by serotonin, norepinephrine, and GABA. So it kind of hits all the right points and it, it works incredibly well. And I was actually reading up under Peridol and like, should we push to use it despite the black box warning, which they 
back in, I don't know, like 15, 20 years ago, there were a series of patients who got triperidol who went into um, Tursad to point. It can cause this like prolonged QT and Tursad and they were blaming the triperidols, but it's incredibly rare. So it's like, should I have this black box warning or not? But irrelevant, it's still tested. <laughs> whether you give it or not, whether your institution has it, it's still a tested drug. So a previously healthy 28-year-old woman scheduled for laparoscopic tubal ligation becomes agitated and refuses to undergo the procedure after being brought to the operating room. This behavior most likely resulted from preoperative administration of adriperidol, B, cimetidine, C, atropine, D, meperidine, imidazolam. Yeah. And, you know, I'll say I would obviously, I, because we're talking about droperidol, I'm going to assume that's the answer here, but I'll be honest, I've never used droperidol. It's always been not on our, on formularies where I've worked because of the black box warning. And so I'm not that familiar with it. I think that it um, can cause anxiety and kind of um, confusion like it's being described here. Atropine, they're trying to get at central anticholinergic syndrome, which, you know, it doesn't exactly present this way of like being totally with it, just refusing to have the surgery and being kind of agitated. So that doesn't strike me as being right for anticholinergic syndrome and the others shouldn't cause this kind of syndrome. So I'd go with A. Right. So you can see behavioral adverse effects of droperidol, and that can include dysphoria, postoperative drowsiness, restlessness, and then this hyperactivity and anxiety, which you can see with it. Next question is the use of droperidol as a pre-anesthetic medication has been associated with each of the following except A, acute anxiety, B, anterograde amnesia, C, hypotension, D, extrapyramidal signs, E, catalepsy. Um, Great. Uh, So again, as you kind of just mentioned, it can cause that anxiety. Um, it, uh, it, It interacts with a lot of things. It can cause some hypotension, extrapyramidal signs, as you mentioned. Um, cataplexy or catalepsy. I'm not sure if that's the same as cataplexy. I, I, I cop- um, copy-paste. It could have just been a typo, yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, as far as I know, it does not cause anterograde amnesia. So I'd probably go with that one. So the mechanism of action of droperidol involves antagonism of all of the following receptors except A, serotonin, B, dopamine, C, alpha-adrenergic, D, glutamate. Yeah. So um, as you mentioned up front, definitely does have some antagonism of serotonin, dopamine, and then the alpha adrenergic, which is how you can get some hypotension. So all three of those, uh, as far as I know, does not block glutamate. And so that would be the answer. So the next question here is the last one about droperidol. So it's a 24-year-old female patient with a preoperative QTC interval of 550 milliseconds is undergoing breast surgery under general anesthesia. Droperidol is administered to the patient for prevention of post-op nausea, following which the patient goes into polymorphic ventricular tachycardia. Which of the following drugs slash therapies is best for the patient at this point? So A, amiodarone, B, lidocaine, C, pacing, D, diltiazem. Um, okay, so they're saying the patient here is going into Torsad um, because of the droperidol who already had a long QTC. So um, what would be ideal here would be magnesium. They're not giving you that as an option. And so um, it's a little tough. Uh, obviously, the first thing you would do in polymorphic VTAC is start CPR and uh, prepare to uh, shock, but neither of those are here. So they're just looking at drugs. And while you can give amiodarone in ACLS, um, in Torsad, uh, you also can try to pace them out of it. So I, I think that's what they're getting at here is that um, you can try to overdrive pace. And, and you, the, th- the key to remember here is that in especially in um, VTAC that's caused by long QT, the slower the heart rate, the longer the QT. If you can pace them into a fast 
heart rate, you actually shorten the QT. And so you can actually not only pace them out of it, but, but prevent it from happening again. And so I think that's what they're getting at here with C. Yeah. And like you said, when I looked up, when I was trying to figure out an explanation for this, magnesium is probably the first line and then pacing if the mag doesn't work. All right. So the next key point is that almost all antiemetics can prolong the QT interval. So here's a question regarding that. So there's a 22-year-old college athlete with a history of prolonged QT syndrome presents for an inguinal hernia repair. Which of the following agents would be least likely to further lengthen the QT interval? A, ondansetron, B, metoclopramide, C, stuxmacoline, D, propofol. Yeah. So um, good good point to know is that all antiemetics except steroids will... um, will uh, lengthen the QT. So uh, you can give Decadron, that's safe, but on Dancetron and Metoclopramide, we'll both do it. Propofol does not, so Propofol is clearly safe. Succinylcholine, um, I actually don't usually think about prolonging the QT, but I think maybe um, uh, it can. And so I would, I would go with Propofol here. Um, so the next key point is actually there are other commonly used antiemetics that include uh, cimetidine, promethazine, and ondansetron. So they're just some kind of hodgepodge questions regarding those drugs. So long-term use of cimetidine is associated with A, delayed emergence after thiopental induction, B, increased hypotension after morphine, C, increased risk for isoflurane-induced nephrotoxicity, D, prolonged action of succinylcholine, E, prolonged sedation with diazepam. Interesting. Not sure I would would know this at all. Um, so, <laughs> um, I'm seeing here that the answer is going to be E, prolonged sedation with diazepam. But this is something I think you either know or you don't. I I would not have gotten this one right. Yeah. So the mnemonic I remember from medical school was CAGE, C A G E, and those are four drugs that inhibit the P450 system. So cimetidine is one of those, and it's probably the most common test question about cimetidine is that it's a P450 inhibitor. Diazepam needs P450 to be metabolized. So if you are on something that inhibits P450, especially long-term, diazepam will act longer. Mm-hmm. And that is really, truly the most common question that I've seen about cimetidine out there. Great. Okay. Good to know. All right. So just a few more questions to wrap up. A 30-year-old woman who underwent a knee arthroscopy has post-op nausea and vomiting in the post-anesthesia care unit. Per report, she received on Dancitron 4 milligrams IV 30 minutes prior to the conclusion of her procedure. Which of the following treatments is most appropriate for managing her post-op nausea and vomiting in the PACU? A, scopolamine patch, B, dexamethasone, C, on Dancitron, D, promethazine. Yeah, so they're telling you she already got on Dancitron or Zofran, so they're trying to push you away from Zofran. That said, in reality, we often give eight, and if she only got four, you certainly could give another four. Um, but they're trying to say, okay, she already got this. It seems like it didn't work. So um, what are you going to give? Scopolamine patch takes too long. If you put it on, it's not going to have any immediate effect. Right. Also, Decadron is best when given you. well in advance, and so that leaves you with D-promethazine. Yeah. And that's really what they're getting at is the timing of these things that scopalamine and decadron should be given earlier in the case. And she just got Zofran. So it's probably time to move on to the next drug. All right. So there's the next question is promethazine primarily inhibits which of the following receptors? A, serotonin, B, dopamine, C, muscarinic, D, acetylcholine. Yeah. So primary dope, primarily dopamine, um, which again, when we go back to that other question that had us wondering on the dopamine, uh, ver- metoclopramide versus promethazine, that's why it was a little hard to answer that question. So promethazine does, is an antidopaminergic too. Okay. So on Dancitron causes its antiemetic effect by acting as an A, agonist at 5-HT2 receptors, B, antagonist at 5-HT2 receptors, C, agonist at 5-HT3 receptors, D, antagonist at 5-HT3 receptors. 
Yeah, these are always hard. You know, I was on rounds the other day in the ICU, and I was saying to my team uh, that you know, Presidex, uh, which is dexmedetomidine, is an alpha-2 receptor blocker, or sorry, alpha-2 receptor agonist. And then I checked myself for a minute, and I had to think through the actual mechanism to re- to think, wait, is it an agonist or an antagonist? So, you know, uh, it, it is an agonist. Uh, Presidex is an, uh, or dexmedetomidine is an alpha-2 receptor agonist. But um, easy to confuse those, so you just have to kind of memorize these. But uh, ondansetron is an antagonist of the 5-HT3 receptor, so D is the right answer here. I think what's fussy about this is it's not enough to know that it's 5-HT. They want you to know three and not two. Yeah, right. That is. <laughs> I've that. seen this question floating around, so better to know it than than not. All right. So the last question is: the 49-year-old patient is undergoing a crany for tumor resection. Interoperatively, the patient received drugs, including thiopental, vecuronium, isoflurane, and fentanyl. The patient is brought to the PACU with a heart rate of 58, a blood pressure of 196 over 96, and oxygen saturation of 98%. A few moments later, the patient has two episodes of vomiting. You would then A, give on dancetron, B, give metoclopramide, C, give fentanyl, D, call the neurosurgeon. Well, which of these things is not like the other, right? So they've given you two antiemetics, they're giving you a pain medicine and then they're saying call the neurosurgeon. And so, you know, anytime you see a question like this, you want to think, hmm, why did they throw call the neurosurgeon in there? That is enough different that I really need to think hard about it. And sure enough, if you think about someone having just had a craniotomy, if all of a sudden they start vomiting, even if it might just be post-amnosia and vomiting, you can't take that risk that it, it isn't uh, increased intracranial pressure. And so you need to call the neurosurgeon. Exactly. So that is it for basic and advanced questions for post-amnosia and vomiting. Like I said, I think really the high yield is going to be pharmacology, um, knowing how the drugs act and interact and the side effects, and particularly uh, Reglan. That's probably the number one tested drug, but they definitely test the other ones. Awesome. Jillian, thank you so much. Let's turn to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations. What do you have to share with us today? So, you know, my kids are out of school and, uh, when we had neighbors move out a couple of years back and they had gifted us a spike ball set, which we had never tried. And we were having some friends over this weekend. I was like, let's pull out the spike ball. Oh my gosh. It is so fun. It's not very expensive. It's like this net. It kind of looks like there's like a small trampoline, like what was really popular in like the eighties to do like individual like exercise on it's, I don't know, maybe two or three feet across and has this tight net and you have this ball and it's basically like volleyball, but instead of going over the net, you have to smack it down onto the net and you can play in teams of two. And it's so much fun because like even younger kids can play it. Like volleyball for me can be very frustrating because the ball, it's hard and it hurts and you got to get it over the net and it's hard for young players, but spike ball, we've played for hours. (laughs) It's so much fun. Totally. It's my new thing. (laughs) Love it. We love spike ball. It is fantastic. Um, and it's really easy to set up and play. It's great on the beach. It's great in the yard. Uh, you can really play anywhere. I wouldn't play on a blacktop, <laughs> only because if you end up sliding or diving for the ball, you're going to really get hurt. But um, it is a ton of fun. Um, I will uh, come along a similar uh, vein here and recommend, and I feel like I'm definitely late to the party, but I'm just going to recommend if anyone hasn't checked out pickleball, it's a ton of fun. Uh, it's a lot like tennis, but instead of playing with a tennis racket, you play with um, what is essentially a ping pong paddle. And then uh, instead of using a tennis ball, you use a, a large wiffle ball, like a softball sized wiffle ball. And what this does is it makes it a slower game. The ball doesn't move as fast. And so you don't have to be that good. And you can kind of pick it up and, and start playing really without any practice. You can just play as long as you can kind of hit a ball like you would a ping pong ball. Just, you know, you don't have to be that good. You can have fun playing. Unlike tennis, which I feel like you really have to like work for a while to be able to be decent enough at tennis to have fun playing. Uh, pickleball, you can kind of pick up and play, and it's a ton of fun. You can play singles or doubles. It's on a court 
usually it's a tennis court that then has smaller lines drawn within the tennis court lines to indicate the pickleball um, lines. And it's a ton of fun. So check it out if you haven't done that. A lot of like my neighbors, you could draw pickleball court lines on your um, driveway. Or like if you have like a parking pad. And so that's what we've done. We have a pickleball court, but we've just drawn it out. And do you have a net? Yeah. Oh, nice. So you just buy a net and then draw the lines on your driveway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. that's all. All right, Jillian, thanks so much. We'll have you back soon. All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Wolpaw on Twitter, and we're at ACRAC Podcast, and you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Ryan Okonski is our social media manager. Dr. April Liu and Edison Jang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. That is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. 